Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, What Happened Next? Indian Philosophy After Dignaga. In this series of podcasts about India, we have tried as best as we could to follow the without-any-gaps approach. Still, with a philosophical tradition as vast as India's, we have had to skip over many barely-known figures and movements, and even with the ones we have managed to include, we can hardly claim to have done them full justice. We began with texts older than the pre-Socratics of ancient Greek thought, and worked our way forward as far as Dignaga and his contemporaries around 600 AD. Initially, philosophy appeared above all as a reflection on the way one lives one's life. Doing philosophy was the way to reach some final desirable end state, be it moksha, a state of ultimate freedom, or nirvana, release from all too human suffering. These philosophies of path and purpose included the ancient wisdom of the Vedas, a body of ritual prescriptions seemingly brought to India by Aryan settlers, and the Upanishads, poetic visions of the unity of humanity, ritual, and cosmos. Under this heading, we also considered the original teachings of the Buddha and Mahavira. We counted the vast Hindu epic, the Mahabharata, which contains within it the Bhagavad Gita, as another thread woven into the rope of thought through time that was early Indian philosophy. Sticking with the weaving theme, we then turned our attention to what we called the Age of the Sutra. Remember, sutra actually means thread. The philosophical texts from this period were highly compressed and aphoristic in nature, hence extremely hard to figure out, without the aid of an interpretive gloss. Thus, we also met the great commentators, who are really responsible for bringing systematicity into the Indian debate, and for the evolution of these schools of Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Samkhya, Yoga, Mimamsa, Charvaka, and Vedanta. Buddhist and Jain philosophers were not to be left out. Their switch to Sanskrit fundamentally transformed philosophy in India until the end of the first millennium. One of the keenest and most fascinating Buddhist philosophers of this period was Nagarjuna, whose formidable assault on the metaphysical notion of svabhava, or self-nature, inspired the formation of a branch of Buddhist philosophy known as Madhyamaka, the middle way philosophy. Another was Vasubandhu, who both standardized Abhidharma in Sanskrit and laid the foundations for another new school of Buddhism, Yogacara. We also looked at the early philosophers of Jainism, including Umasvati, and their perspectival approach to epistemology. After meandering through all this early history of Indian philosophy, we finally got on to Dignaga. Dignaga was certainly a philosophical genius of the highest order, a figure who would make it onto even the most conservative, top-of-the-pops list of greatest philosophers. His work was decisive in shaping the next period of Indian philosophy, a cosmopolitan age of dialogue in Sanskrit that lasted until the collapse of Buddhism in India, a collapse usually, but not entirely uncontentiously, blamed on invasion from the Islamic world. We are not alone in seeing Dignaga as the inaugural figure in an entirely new epoch in Indian philosophy, although scholars have different opinions as to the reasons for his extraordinary influence. Of course, we have put the emphasis on his theoretical innovations and his invention of new philosophical methods, including new ways of defining terms and new formalizations of sound argumentation. But others have noted that he also invented a new way of writing philosophy, a transformation of discursive practice. For example, Lawrence McRae says that Dignaga 
initiated a sudden, widespread, and radical transformation in the reading, citational, and discursive practices of Sanskrit philosophers, a transformation perhaps even more dramatic in its effects than Dignaga's specifically philosophical contributions. He makes the systematic investigation of, and response to, the texts of rival philosophical traditions a basic organizing principle of his own work. These new ways of arguing and writing about philosophy were immediately taken up by a large sector of the philosophical community and rapidly became the hallmark of philosophical activity in a broad Sanskrit cosmopolis that was to endure for centuries, and whose geographical borders spread well beyond the subcontinent. So that brings us to the end of the series. We've occasionally glimpsed further ahead, for instance when discussing the ideas of Abhinavagupta, who lived in the 11th century. Later figures have also been mentioned now and again by our interview guests, and we have picked out topics and themes for particular attention, such as nonviolence, the role women played in the early history of Indian philosophy, animals, karma, time, and even tantra. In effect, we've covered the first millennium and a half of Indian philosophy, which isn't too bad in 60 episodes. Yet, if anything, things really picked up speed in the next millennium and a half, between Dignaga and the present day. A huge amount of great philosophy happened on the Indian subcontinent in that time. Perhaps we shall return to treat it properly, and without any gaps, in another series of podcasts in the future. For now, we will round off this series with the briefest of hints as to the history of philosophy in India from Dignaga onwards. It is something of an irony that, despite his enormous impact, the works of Dignaga in Sanskrit were lost for a long time. The reason for this is that he was blessed, or possibly cursed, in having an extremely brilliant disciple, Dharmakirti. It was Dharmakirti's work that provided the canon for later authors, widely disseminated, commented on, and attacked, even as Dignaga's own writings faded into the background. For at least three centuries, most serious philosophy in India took Dharmakirti as its principal point of reference in one way or another. Thus, Dharmakirti has also rightly received an enormous amount of scholarly attention over the last 30 years or so. As all the schools we reviewed in this series developed, they took Dharmakirti as their foil. In the course of doing so, they achieved great progress in articulating their core beliefs and providing them with arguments of a higher caliber than had ever been necessary before. Many important figures come from Kashmir, including Shaiva thinkers like Utpaladeva and the aforementioned Abhinavagupta, as well as the Nyaya genius Jayanta Bhatta. We saw that skepticism played an important role in Indian thought from an early period, and may even have helped to trigger ancient Greek skepticism, and that continued to be the case in later times. In the 9th century, Jayarashi described himself as a lion who had come to upturn every philosophical cart, but matters really came to a head with a revolutionary critique of the fundamentals of pramana epistemology provided by Srihasra. His 12th century philosophical classic, Amassed Morsels of Refutation, is a brilliant destructive analysis of the definition-mongering philosophical activities of past generations of thinkers. Srihasra attempted to demonstrate that a philosophical method based on the search for definitions is misguided, indeed incoherent. He developed a rival method, a method of refutation, to expose as vacuous the way of doing philosophy pursued so influentially by Dignaga. This new method required Srihasha to reconstruct the best possible version of any definition, not merely the best one anyone had actually formulated. 
his ability to articulate philosophical positions with greater insight, accuracy, and acuity than their own proponents is nothing short of astonishing. Various other sorts of philosophical critique also gathered momentum. One came from new developments in Mimamsa philosophical theory about the nature of inquiry, still developed within their traditional framework of defending the legitimacy and authority of Vedic knowledge. To suppose that the Vedas are authoritative is to accept as unquestionable the truth of the beliefs we take from them. If the Veda teaches something, there is no need to engage in verification. This led Brahminical thinkers to reflect on methodology and the nature of knowledge, as they contested the notion that truth must be the outcome of discovery and confirmation. Another sort of critique came in the form of a growing challenge to the metaphysics of common sense. A series of increasingly sophisticated Advaita philosophers sought to undermine the principle that appearance is trustworthy, and in particular, that there is a world populated by everyday objects that are known to a plurality of distinct cognizers. In the 14th century, and in response to all these different pressures, a philosopher emerged who transformed the philosophical landscape in a manner just as brilliantly and decisively as Dignaga in the 6th century. This was a second great revolution. His name was Gangesha. He wrote only one book, a book that styles itself as the jewel that fulfills the wish for truth. His new conceptual methodologies, his response to the general skepticism of Sriharsha and the more specific challenges to inquiry from Mimamsa and Advaita, rapidly gained currency throughout the Sanskrit world. Indeed, use of his new method, which was called Navya Nyaya, the new Nyaya, spread to all intellectual disciplines. It was to prove especially influential in the fields of law and jurisprudence. The heart of Gangesha's new method was a meticulous technique for the disambiguation of terms and assertions, so that an opponent's thesis could be carefully separated into a variety of possible readings, each of which could then be individually refuted. The 16th and 17th centuries were an extraordinary period for philosophy in India. This was partly, but only partly, the result of new encounters with Islamic culture. Exposure to new paradigms of thinking led Sanskrit philosophers to innovate self-consciously, to think with the old structures but not defer to them. An astonishingly vast number of works in Sanskrit exist from this period. In the writings of those philosophers who followed Raghunatha Shiromani from about the middle of the 16th century until the middle of the 18th, there is a metamorphosis in epistemology, metaphysics, semantics, and philosophical logic. The works of these philosophers, many of whom lived in Raghunatha's hometown of Navadvipa in Bengal, are full of phrases indicative of a newly open and exploratory attitude, phrases like, this should be considered further, or this needs to be reflected on. It was not new exegesis of the ancient texts that drove this work, but inquiry into the problems themselves, along with a sense of engaging in an ongoing project. A second group of philosophers, this time based in Varanasi, and again profoundly influenced by Raghunatha, sought to use his work in reinterpretations of ancient metaphysics, sometimes with the support of the Islamic rulers of Mughal India. At the same time, and in opposition to Raghunatha's band of new reasoners, while also co-opting his methods, the works of thinkers like Madhusudana Sarasvati, Apaya Dikshita, and Nilakanta Chaturdara brought forth a distinctive renewal to Vedanta in their own complex negotiations with Mughal patronage and power and with their own pasts. 
In tandem with these developments in Sanskrit literature, Muslim philosophers were producing important and innovative philosophy in parallel centers of Islamic learning. Three important Islamic trends in India emerged during the 17th and 18th centuries. As we mentioned in the last episode, there was the bilingual project of Dada Shikoh and others who translated philosophy from Sanskrit into Persian. Then, there was the Sufi philosophy of Muhibbullah Ilahabadi, a prolific author in Persian and Arabic and defender of the Andalusian mystic Ibn Arabi. Finally, there was debate between Avicennan thinkers, such as the influential philosopher Mahmud Janpuri, and illuminationists. Meanwhile, Muhibbullah al-Bihari's Sulam al-Ulum is a milestone 17th century Indian textbook in Arabo-Islamic logic. Some of these developments were discussed briefly in the podcast in this series on philosophy in the Islamic world. Check out episode 189. Unfortunately, we still have only the most rudimentary understanding of the nature of intersections between Sanskrit, Persian, and Arabic philosophical scholarship in early modern India. Nor at present do we have much insight into the dynamics of philosophical activity in Indian vernacular languages in the period. We next moved to the era of British colonial occupation, which was not quite the total disaster for indigenous philosophy in India that it might have been, as colonialism so often was in other parts of the world. One effect it did have was to foreground new philosophical priorities, especially the need to respond to an incompatibility at the heart of the colonial project. On the one hand were the pretensions of European claims concerning the values of liberty, tolerance, equality, and secularism. On the other hand, were the multiple and manifest illiberalities, intolerances, and inequalities of colonial rule, which began first during a period of exploitative governance by the East India Company from the Battle of Plassey in 1757 until the failed Independence War in 1857, and then under direct colonial rule by the British Crown until independence was finally won in 1947. Brilliant Indian thinkers like Gandhi, Nehru, Ambedkar, and Tagore, now often writing in English, made political and social philosophy the center of philosophical activity in India, whereas in earlier times it had been mind, language, epistemology, and metaphysics. Meanwhile, other philosophers reflected deeply on the nature of the subject, its freedom, agency, and identity, in a concerted effort to formulate the philosophical grounds of an intellectual decolonization. In the struggle for freedom from political and intellectual servitude, the whole of India's philosophical past became an immense resource. In particular, its perceived spirit of negotiated pluralism and non-coercive cosmopolitanism were made central to the design of a post-independence nation. Philosophy has continued to progress in India from the 1950s to the present day. Though sometimes struggling to find a voice inside Victorian-era universities, and understandably taking a back seat to the more urgent task of rebuilding the Indian economy after the ravages of extractive colonial governance, there are positive signs that, as India enters a new period of economic prosperity, philosophy will again assume its traditional place at the very heart of Indian society and culture. And thanks both to new perspectives from the South Asian diaspora, as well as to a new generation of philosophers in the West who have a more global and cosmopolitan view of the discipline than their predecessors, the study of Indian philosophy in universities around the world is enjoying a period of unprecedented growth. Should this make us expect that insights from Indian thought will be brought into philosophy as it is taught and researched outside India? 
Of course, our hope is that this podcast and other efforts to familiarize a broad audience with this tradition will give philosophers a push in that direction. In that spirit, we'll conclude by noting a few areas where the Indian contribution seems both distinctive and promising from a contemporary point of view. Let's begin right where we finished, that is, with the interview that closed our historical survey and preceded our discussion of the influence of Indian philosophy on other cultures. In that interview, we heard from Amber Carpenter, who explained the famous Indian ethic of non-violence towards animals. As you might have noticed, the rationale given against harming animals was very different from what we usually hear today from partisans of animal welfare, including philosophers who concern themselves with this issue. If you consider a prominent figure in today's philosophical discussion like Peter Singer, you find utilitarian principles being used to argue for better treatment of animals. It is because animals can suffer and get something positive out of life that we should avoid harming them. Other animal ethicists take a rights-based approach, arguing that animals have just as much claim to liberty and welfare as we do, a position that could justify complete animal liberation, not in the Buddhist or Jain sense of that term, but meaning the abolition of all use of animals for human purposes. By contrast, the ancient Indian commitment to nonviolence was a holistic way of life, with avoidance of animal suffering as only one of its many consequences or aspects. To live in accordance with nonviolence, or ahimsa, is to take a certain attitude towards all living things, including plants, to oneself, and even towards inanimate objects. Kicking a stone in anger could be a violation of this ethic, even though the stone obviously has no rights or ability to suffer. As the Mahabharata puts it, ahimsa is the dharma, it is the highest purification, it is also the highest truth from which all dharma proceeds. It would be interesting to see whether a modern-day philosopher could revive this Indian teaching, putting the avoidance of violence at the center of an ethical theory rather than trying to extract non-violence out of some other core notion like utility or duty. The relatively recent revival of Aristotelian ethics, which has a similar holism and commitment to virtue as a way of life, may give us some cause for optimism on this score. In metaphysics, we've seen a number of theories that are more fascinating and important for a global history of philosophy than likely to appeal to the average philosopher of today. The prospects for a comeback of Samkhya category theory, with its lists of different types of entities, or of Vedanta monism, seem rather remote. But the metaphysical theory, if it is right to call it a theory, of another author might be a more plausible source of inspiration. The author we have in mind is Nagarjuna. In the interview with Graham Priest, we heard how Nagarjuna's patterns of reasoning might be compared to non-classical logic. Similarly, his ideas about emptiness and dependent origination may seem worth revisiting. Let's assume for the sake of argument that we were right in our interpretation of him. After all, it's our podcast. We argue that to say things are empty is to claim that they have no fixed intrinsic essence or nature. Rather, the being of things would be purely relational. This, it seems, could be an exciting idea for a modern-day metaphysician. Rather than thinking of the world as being made up of discrete objects that then bear relations to one another, what if we took the relations as the fundamental building blocks? At the very least, some philosophers today are ready to admit that relations are ineliminable from our view of the world, in other words, that we cannot just translate all talk of relations into non-relational properties. And some would say that a relational view of things may fit with modern physics better than a view based around intrinsic natures. 
Nagarjuna could be a formidable ally to philosophers who are already inclined to think that way. Let's turn to epistemology, which as we've seen was one of the most abiding concerns of the ancient Indian philosophers. Here, we have seen both constructive contributions to the theory of knowledge, in the form of developments of the theory of pramanas, and also rich skeptical traditions. We referred to Sriharsha earlier, and his critique of epistemology seems indeed to be attracting the contention of contemporary epistemologists. Something similar is true of Sanskrit work in the philosophy of language, especially its highly developed accounts of metaphor and literary significance. Yet, perhaps the area where there has been most activity in the direction of a cross-cultural philosophy has been in the philosophy of mind. Classical Indian theories of mind have fed into contemporary progress in the area of cognitive science and in new philosophical understandings of consciousness, attention, and self-representation. The celebrated Oxford philosopher Michael Dummett thought that philosophy of mind was the area in philosophy which would profit most from philosophers working in divergent traditions coming together, and there does seem to be some truth in this. We conclude this series on an emphatic note by saying that ancient Indian thought has everything a historian of philosophy could want. It is a tradition rich with interpretive challenges, full of subtle texts that respond to one another, and are often intriguing in their literary form. It was historically influential, to some extent on the European ideas that are more familiar to many philosophers, but above all, in cultures across Asia. It addressed core questions in every department of philosophy, and it advanced novel ideas in many, if not all, of these areas, including ideas that could be taken up by contemporary thinkers. This is not to say that every philosopher has an obligation to learn something about Indian intellectual history, but it is to say that any philosopher could benefit greatly from doing so. One reason that we don't think there is such an obligation is that there is so much other great philosophy in other cultures and other times. Perhaps no one alive has a truly full appreciation of the riches of European philosophy from the Greeks all the way down to the present day, and as this series has shown, Europe has not been the only place where great philosophy was done. So, the podcast is going to continue looking at non-European traditions. These will hopefully eventually include China and other East Asian cultures, which will give us a chance to learn about the aforementioned influence of Indian thought, but our next stop will be Africa. In a further series of episodes, which will run about the same length as this series on ancient India, Chike Jeffers will be joining me to explore philosophy in Africana culture, beginning with ancient Egypt and going forward to philosophy in the diaspora of the peoples of Africa right down to the late 20th century. If you've followed this series using iTunes or some other way of subscribing to the podcast, then just stay subscribed because these episodes on Africana philosophy will be appearing on the same feed. Of course, they will also appear on the podcast website. And before that, you'll get one last look at Indian culture as we're joined for a finale with a very special secret interview guests. But since this has been the last scripted episode, I'd like to finish for today by saying how grateful I am to Janardan Ganeri for lending his expertise to the podcast and helping me to tell you all about the history of philosophy in India. <laughs>